Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and... And I'm Kevin. And we're coming back at you this week with episode number 75, The Hi-Fi Murders. This one's a doozy. Yeah, I mean, as almost pretty much all of them are, I got the idea for this episode because I did decide to start binging season two of Cold. And if you know me or if you've ever seen my recommendations for podcasts, the Cold podcast is always my number one most recommended podcast that I've listened to. It's David. Oh, gosh, I'm going to forget his name on the spot right now. But anyways... He's a reporter out of Salt Lake City, and he did the Susan Powell case in season one of Cold, and it is just one of the most beautifully done, beautifully put together, thoughtful podcasts that I've ever listened to, and it basically, I mean, most people know that, like, well, no spoilers, but most people know who the murderer is, and basically, Dave Colley, that's his name. Dave Colley basically confirms that. And he had a really big hand, I think, in Susan Powell's family receiving, you know, reparations or whatever, you know, kind of payment that they did in a civil lawsuit, I think, after the crime. Anyways, season two is about another murder that happens in Utah uh, in the Ogden area, I think. I don't know if it's Ogden specifically, but one thing, but the, the, the crime that we're going to be talking about today does take place in Ogden, Utah, and he referred to the case a lot in one of the episodes because it was kind of a precedent set in the Ogden, Utah area. And I mean, a crime of this magnitude and of this like just caliber, you know, like just had never really been seen in this area before. And it really kind of brought back up a lot of capital punishment stuff that hadn't really been addressed in Utah in a very long time. So anyways, I had definitely heard of this crime before, but after listening to season two of Cold Pod, the the Cold Podcast, I definitely wanted to look into it some more and because it's fucking brutal. So it's super brutal. So anyways, Kevin did the research for this episode and the writing for this episode. So we'll let you take it away. All right, we'll buckle up. Ogden, Utah, 1974, a picturesque city nestled at the base of the Wasatch Mountains. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I think that's actually right. Well, they could never be prepared for the sadism and horror that would take place on a seemingly normal April day. Today, we discuss, like Amy said, the Hi-Fi murders, and this case is extremely violent and depraved, so those sensitive to insane violence... You have been warned. So like I said, Ogden, Utah is a pretty place with mountains and all that. The Great Salt Lake is about 10 miles away, and Salt Lake City is about 40 miles away as well. I actually was in Ogden as a child on a family vacation. Really? Yeah. And me, my dad, and my two sisters. And the only thing I really remember walking through like the old downtown area was like, I don't know if it was a tarantula 
but this giant spider jumped on Heather's foot <laughs> and she fucking flipped out and was screaming, running down the street. And uh, I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. So that's my memory of Ogden. Mm-hmm. Uh, another fun factoid, Ogden was originally named Fort Buenaventura. It's kind of Which funny. Which is like where we live. Yeah. So this crime went down in 1974, as I mentioned, and the level of violence in this crime is off the charts. There's no first-person shooter video games or ultra-violent horror movies or bands like Cannibal Corpse that have, you know, if you know them, you know what I'm talking about. There was none of that at this time. So where did these people get these ideas from? Well, there was a movie, and we'll get to it, but... Some other crazy things that went on in 1974. President Nixon resigned due to the Watergate scandal. Uh, Heiress Patty Hearst was kidnapped outside of her apartment in Berkeley, California. Yeah, that was a big deal. (laughs) By the Symbionese Liberation Army. And then she later joined them and robbed a bank with them, right? Yeah. And there's an iconic photo of her. Like some kind of like Tommy gun or some shit, right? Yeah, and it was one. It, it was after the actual case of quote unquote Stockholm syndrome, but this was one of the most popular cases of quote unquote Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Which, that's a problematic, you know, ter- psychological term at, in this day and age. But that's how we. That's how it was popularized at the time. Stephen King published his first novel, Carrie. Wow. The Heaven's Gate cult is formed. Rumbling Jungle. Took them a long time to do anything with it, though. <laughs> Heaven's Gate was like something like 14 or like 20 people for like a good 20 years before like shit went crazy. Do you think that they actually got on the comet? I'd like to think they did. I think they did. Uh, that Rumble in the Jungle fight with uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. That was a big <laughs> deal. Yeah. Uh, Rubik's Cube and Dungeons and Dragons were both invented. Wow. Yeah. Totally not relevant to this case, but... Uh, you weren't even born yet. I was almost born. Yeah. You were a twinkle in your father's eye, maybe. Not even. Yeah. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> like he's thinking about having you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to Google it. Yeah. But I am totally stalling because this case is fucked up. So here we go. On April 22nd, Stanley Walker, 20 years old, and Michelle Ainsley, 18, were working at the Hi-Fi shop on 2323 Washington Boulevard. They sold electronics and home stereo equipment, records too, I think. Michelle had been working there for just a week. Around 7 p.m., two airmen from the U.S. Air Force walked into the store. Dale Pierre, or Pierre Dale Selby, He has a lot of names. Dale Pierre was 21 years old and was born on the Isle of Tobago in 1952, but grew up on the Isle of Trinidad. Growing up, Dale was always in trouble for one thing or another, although his parents tried to instill in him the difference between what was right and what was wrong. Pierre was a compulsive liar, and he had a temper that he tried to control. And when he knew that someone had his game, meaning they were onto his bullshit... He would either go apeshit or kind of shut down. If Dale didn't get what he wanted, when he wanted it, there was no reasoning with him. But this side of him was not known to his parents. In June of 1970, Dale, we'll, 
well, we'll just call him Pierre, like I said. He left Trinidad and Tobago for the United States, arriving in New York on June 7th. He lived in Brooklyn until May of 1973 when he joined the United States Air Force and was assigned to the Hill Air Force Base in Utah as a helicopter mechanic. The other guy, William Andrews, was 19 years old. He was born in Virginia in 1953. His childhood was based... His childhood was basically normal, and William, by all accounts, was a well-behaved child. He joined the Air Force in 1973 and was also assigned to the Hill Air Force Base as a mechanic for helicopters. At Hill, the two men became friends, against all the odds. They entered the store. So so these are the two guys, okay? They entered the store, the hi-fi store, and immediately subdued Stanley and Michelle at gunpoint. They were brought to the basement where they were tied up. Then Pierre and William Andrews began methodically robbing the store. They knew exactly what they were looking for before they went into there, said Deloy K. White, the lead detective in the case. They also knew where there would be at least two people in the store and that they would have to be killed. They did no more and no less than what they had planned. More than $24,000 of the finest stereo equipment in the store had been taken. Lesser quality units had been left behind. And that's probably in today's money close to like $100,000 worth of stuff. So while these two were cherry picking the best shit in the store, a 16-year-old boy named Courtney Nesbitt entered the store to thank Stanley Walker for helping him with an errand and was also taken hostage and tied up in the basement with Walker and Ainsley. You know, this reminds me of the Lane Bryant murders. Oh, right. Where it's just weird timing. It's like broad daylight and there's a couple people working at the store and rather than, I don't know, take the money and go or take the stuff and go, they like take hostages and make it this big thing, but then don't lock the front door. So customers and people are constantly walking in. So they become part of the crime. Everybody's innocent except for the gunman, obviously. But like, it's just so unnecessary. They could have just, I don't know, locked these guys up in a closet, stolen everything and left or put them down in the basement, tied them up, whatever, and then locked the front doors, demand the key like you need to lock the front door so nobody comes by. Yeah. I just I don't understand like this in the Lane Bryant shootings is just so many innocent bystanders who just were like, I need to buy something, you know, or I, I want to thank this person for something, you know, just insanely pointless. Well, these two that were working at the store, they were doomed from the start because we'll yeah. get to it. But these guys didn't want any. Uh, yeah, they didn't want any, any witnesses. witnesses yeah. right? No living witnesses. So, like we said, while these two were cherry picking everything in the store, Courtney Nesbitt comes in to thank Stanley Walker. When Stanley didn't show up for dinner, his father, Oren Walker, went to the shop thinking maybe he was having trouble with the utility Jeep he had just bought. So upon entering the store, he also was immediately overtaken and brought to the basement. So this, we have the two young employees. We have one of the employees' friends and now one of the employees' dads. Correct. So there's four people tied up in the basement? Yeah. Okay. At this point, Pierre tells Andrews to go get something from the van they had waiting outside. With the van is the getaway driver, Keith Leon Roberts. 19 years old. 
Some reports say Roberts was at the front of the store guarding the door, but that wouldn't make sense with the people coming in. Mm -hmm. And the van was supposedly parked out back, and he'd be a horrible getaway driver if he wasn't in the car. (laughs) So Andrews goes to get something from the van. He comes back with a bottle in a brown paper bag. He pours some of its contents into a cup. The liquid is blue. Pierre tells Oren Walker to make the three kids drink this blue shit. Oren refuses. Oren's the dad, right? Oren is the dad. Okay. He refuses and is bound and gagged and thrown face down on the basement floor. Pierre and William Andrews then propped each of the victims into sitting positions and forced them to drink the liquid, telling them it was vodka laced with sleeping pills. Rather, it was an industrial drain cleaner like Drano, whose active ingredient is sodium hydroxide. The moment it touched their lips, enormous blisters rose. It began to burn their tongues and throats and peel away the flesh around their mouths. That's fucking crazy. It's fucking totally crazy. Michelle, still begging for her life, was not forced to drink the drain cleaner. Pierre and William then tried to duct tape the hostage's mouth shut to hold the drain cleaner in. Okay, this part is fucking totally crazy. They tried to duct tape their mouths shut to hold the cleaner in and to silence their screams, but their flesh was literally being eaten away, almost melting and disgustingly preventing the tape from sticking. (sighs) Oren Walker was the last to be given the drain cleaner. And just a reminder, Oren Walker is Stanley Walker's dad, the one who came looking for him, yeah. He was the last one to be given the drain cleaner, but after seeing what was happening to the other hostages, he allowed it to pour out of his mouth and then faked convulsions and screams like that of his son and fellow hostages. Fucked up. Very fucked up. So off track for a sec. Um, I actually played a couple shows with this uh, black metal band from France called Antaeus. And it's kind of a similar thing. But like during some of their shows, their singer, vocalist, whatever, his name is MKM. He would drink bleach during their set. And I never saw it firsthand. Why? Uh, Well... Um, you know, like some bands like cut their arms up and stuff like that. But why bleach? Well, so when he would be doing vocals or whatever, like blood would be like coming out of his mouth and shit and like, like frothing out. Is he still alive? Yeah. Jesus Christ. We played with him in Portland. We did some shows on the West Coast with him. Uh, And he's like, He wasn't blinking, drinking bleach at that point? No, he only, he's only done it a few times, obviously, but. He also has cut himself on stage like so deep that he passed out on stage like more than one time and had to been rushed to the hospital. He sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> He's actually kind of cool. He's really quiet. It's always, it's always <laughs> the quiet because of the ones. bleach. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of that. So anyways, back to the story here. Pierre's getting pissed off. This is really nice because these people aren't dying fast enough. It turns out that they got... Yeah, Drano doesn't fucking necessarily kill you. It just fucks you up really bad. Yeah. So they got the idea to make these people drink Drano from a Clint Eastwood movie, Magnum Force. Uh, In that movie, there's a scene... Have you seen that? um, I probably saw it when I was a kid. Mm. But there's a scene where a man forces a prostitute's drain cleaner, and she dies instantly. So they thought these guys would drink that stuff and just die. 
wasn't there like a soldier on the base or something that said that they had been watching this movie like the week before? Yeah. Investigator, I will get to that. But yeah, they watched it like three times in one day. Oof. <laughs> yeah. So these hostages were not as lucky as this lady in the movie. They basically were drowning in their own fluids very slowly and very painfully because their throats were melting. So tired of waiting, Pierre shoots Courtney and his mom, Carol. So we didn't talk about Carol. She came to the shop uh, after Oren looking for her son because he never came home either. She shows up when Pierre and William are pouring that shit down people's throats. And so they go up and drag her down. And what a scene to be dragged into. I don't think she was given the Drano. Her and her son were both shot in the back of the head. Pierre then shoots at Oren, but missed. Yeah, and Oren, again, is is one of the employee's dads. Yeah. Yeah. He then fatally shot Oren's son, Stanley, in the back of the head, basically right in front of his dad. So at this point, how many people are dead? Um, Right now, two. Jeez. And there's five hostages and two gunmen right now, or two captors yes okay. two captors five, five victims, victims. Five, five hostages two of which are dead right now yeah uh so after missing and shooting Oren's son stanley pierre then shoots Oren again and this time he hits him in the back of the head so the so Oren is the dad he has been given drano he lets it dribble out of his mouth and pretends that he's convulsing. He's been shot at twice, and he's been, still alive. He's been shot at. He's been shot at twice, missed. one of which hit the back of the his head. The other one hits, okay. hits him in the back of the head. So Stanley is dead. Carol is dead. Carol has been shot, and now Oren is shot. So four, all four people are shot. The now. only one who's not shot at this point is Michelle. Correct. Who is with the young employee. Okay. Yes, the only, yeah, the, the young female one. Pierre then forces Michelle Ainsley to a back corner of the basement and makes her undress. Fuck. He then brutally rapes her repeatedly as William Andrew watches. When he's done, he drags her naked to where the other hostages are. Then he shoots her in the head and kills her. So he kind of, it seems like maybe he didn't kill her along with the other two or what they think is three. Because he wanted to rape her first before he killed her? Yeah. Fuck, Sounds dude. like it. It's fucked up. Well, when you thought it couldn't get any possibly worse, it gets fucking worse. So like we said, Oren is still alive at this point, laying face down. So Pierre sat on the on his back and tried to strangle him with some sort of like wire. Yeah, like something that they found in the store, right? I'm assuming like speaker wire or something like that. Yeah, but it didn't work. So... Oren has been given Drano. He's been shot at twice. One of which hit the back of his head. Now they're trying to strangle him with wire. So they're just like fucking like, why won't this guy die? Basically, right? (sighs) What they did next is something out of a fucked up movie. This is a lot. Now Oren is laying on his side. And I believe that William Andrews, he sticks the ballpoint into his ear and then Pierre stomps on it until it pierces his ear canal and it breaks and it comes out of his 
fucking throat. Yeah, fucking a, dude. Dude, I think that they what they were hoping for, which is fucking ugh. I at this point, I'm like, did they run out of bullets? Like, why are they doing this? Or are they just doing it to like because they think it's funny or cool? I think did they run just, out of bullets? I don't think so. They had two. They could have fucking. I think shot they both had it. guns. Okay. Uh, well, so, I know that William Andrews at this point has done none of the shooting. It's just been Pierre. But then it seems like William Andrews does like take part in like this ballpoint pen thing. But I think that they were thinking that, you know, if you just kick this pen into the guy's ear, it'll come out the other ear and it'll like pierce his brain and he'll die. I think that's what they're thinking. Right. But the trajectory of the ballpoint pen goes out of his throat. So it misses his well, brain completely. Breaks. Yeah. So it like kind of does a it splinters. Yeah. Oh, I, I, see. I think it or like it, it like I don't know. It spl- it splinters and it it juts out a different way Instead that they weren't of going expecting. His brain, yeah. yeah, it didn't stay straight. Fuck, dude. So after this, uh, Pierre and William Andrews walked upstairs and finished loading the rest of the stolen gear into the waiting van. So these people are just fucking either dead or like dying and they're just like nope well let's go get our stereo equipment and they're putting in the getaway yeah they're putting in the getaway car oh the victims were discovered four hours later when oren's wife so remember now this is like the whole family so the son was working stanley and he's killed oren goes to check on him he is the one that's had all the crazy shit happen to him with the ballpoint pen and all that stuff. His wife comes looking for him like four hours later. With another one of her sons, 16 years old. Okay. Oh, yeah. And the other son came to the store looking for them. Oren's other son heard noises coming from the basement and broke down the back door while Mrs. Walker called 911. Ogden police officers G.H. Bowcut and K. Youngberg pulled into the parking lot at the Ogden Hi-Fi shop shortly after 10 p.m. Police dispatchers had reported an unknown trouble, an all-too-vague term that leaves an officer guessing as to what will be wrong. That Monday night call on April 22, 1974, could easily have been a family fight or burglar alarm gone haywire, but this call would be different than any other. As the police cruiser pulled into the parking lot, a hysterical woman ran towards the officer saying, they've been shot, they've been shot, they're downstairs. Flashlight beams bounced off the walls as the officers descended the stairs. Four bodies lay motionless on the carpeted basement floor, silhouetted against the sights and smells of blood and vomit and death. Another victim was found upstairs. When I went into view of the scene, I couldn't believe what I saw. I couldn't believe it had happened particularly in Ogden, said Hi-Fi prosecutor Robert Newey. It was very, very grisly. It was so needless. The ghastly sight at 2323 Washington Boulevard would remain in the minds of everyone who witnessed it. Stanley Walker and Michelle Ainsley, the two original employees, were already dead. Carol Nisbet lived just long enough to be loaded into the ambulance but was pronounced dead on arrival at St. Benedict's Hospital. So three of the hostages are dead at this point on getting to the hospital. Courtney Nesbitt, remember the 16-year-old kid who came by to thank Stanley Walker for something? Like he was just totally an innocent bystander. I mean, they're all innocent, but he just like happened to come by the shop, right? Carol's his mom. 
He was not expected to survive. It was reported that with every breath he took, a pink bloody froth would erupt from his nose and mouth because of the Drano. But he pulled through with serious and permanent brain damage and was hospitalized for 266 days, so almost the better part of a year. Oren Walker survived as well, but had extensive burns around his mouth and face, along with major ear damage from the torture. Once the word got out, it left the community in a state of disbelief, unrest, complete suspicion as to who had done it. Worried, would they return? Who would they get next? Said Nui. He was the prosecutor, right? Mm-hmm. The atmosphere of fear spurred the Ogden police to react quickly and with every available resource. Virtually every officer who was not on patrol was called in to assist. Every detective and lab technician responded. For the next 24 hours, officers worked feverishly, tracking down leads and telephone tips and interviewing witnesses. This news turned the town upside down. Just hours after some of the details about the crime were revealed, a tip line was set up and it was overflowing with calls, most of them leading nowhere. But an Air Force officer called police and told them about something that William Andrews had told him. Quote, One of these days I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop and if anyone gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. That's quite the quote. Yeah. It turns out that Pierre and William Andrews went to that hi-fi store only two days earlier to price out equipment and make an attack plan. Several hours later, two teenage boys were dumpster diving at Hill Air Force Base, where all these maniacs were stationed. Some say up to six people were involved with this crime, but only three were ever arrested. These two teenagers were looking for like pop bottles and stuff, and ended up finding the two wallets of the victims, Michelle Ansley and Courtney Nasbitt. So these boys immediately informed police. The detective who responded to the scene believed that the killers might be in the crowd, so he put on a show, speaking dramatically and waving a piece of evidence in the air with tongs as he removed them from the dumpster. And I remember from the episode of True Crime All the Time on this episode, they were saying that that's one of the reasons that this case is studied so much at the FBI is that just, you know, based on profiling and stuff, they basically were like, the people who did this will be in the audience basically watching it. So look for someone acting weird, look for someone looking guilty or something like that. So they like kind of purposely put on this show and had plainclothes detectives like watching the crowd. And they basically were able to kind of single these guys out. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons they study this case at the FBI and all that at Quantico and stuff, because it's it was like one of the first cases that it it turned out to be true. You know, it was a, it was a what you call it, a, a skill or some kind of detective tactic to kind of suss out the, the, the suspects. Right. Like the idea is like the the perpetrators want to. A, know what law enforcement know. Yeah. And B, want to like kind of revel in their crime. Yeah, in their victory or like what they see as their victory. So as they're pulling out these things out of this dumpster, they they noticed a lot of people around the dumpster just stood still and watched in relative silence. But two of the airmen uh, were pacing and acting all sketchy and stuff. And it reminds me of like fucking Chris Watts. 
in that family next door or whatever when they're watching the ring video footage and he's like fucking pacing the room because he's like fuck there's there's video evidence of me fucking like killing my family and he's like pacing with his head with his hands on his head being like super stressed out yeah and the neighbor's like dude he did it like the way you know like you just gotta like really watch people you know I mean, walking around like that is not very subtle. Yeah. <laughs> you look like you're having a breakdown. And then, like, when Chris Watts realized that the, the video footage didn't, like, definitively, like, put him as the suspect or something, he was like, oh, well, let's move on with our lives, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. So the detective later identified these two sketchy guys as Pierre and William Andrews. This detective actually received an award from the Utah branch of the Justice Department for his use of proactive techniques. Oh, technique. That was the word I was trying to fucking think of. There you go. (laughs) Ogden detectives described the suspects to the Hill Air Force Base authorities who supplied the police with names. One was William Andrews and the other was Pierre. I recognize the name, said White. So White is the lead detective on the case. Mm. Uh, Quote, I knew he was a suspect in another homicide, but Pierre's name never came up until we were on the base. Actually, when Pierre was new to the Air Force, he became a suspect in the murder of Sergeant Edwards Jefferson. This next part. Oh, yeah. yeah. So this comes from Pierre's Murderpedia. Jefferson was found in his apartment, murdered by a bayonet. The detective in charge of the case, Don Moore, pieced together what happened from witnesses and records. On Sunday, October 1st, 1973, Dale Pierre had been at Jefferson's apartment taping music when Jefferson discovered that his keys were missing. Although Pierre and Jefferson thoroughly searched the house, the keys remained missing. It wasn't until the next day that the keys were found. How they were found is the key to the murder. Oh, I see what you did there. It seems that Pierre swiped the keys and brought them to the base for duplication, When Jefferson's car keys and apartment key were duplicated, Pierre signed the named Curtis Alexander in an attempt to conceal the fact that he had stolen them. When Pierre returned to Jefferson's apartment the next day to help him find the keys and miraculously the keys reappeared. Jefferson immediately became suspicious of Pierre and changed the locks to his apartment and changed his ignition. When confronted by Jefferson, Pierre denied everything. Sometime during the hours of 10 p.m. on Thursday, October 4th, and 4 a.m. on Friday, October 5th, Jefferson was murdered with a bayonet. So, basically, Pierre was trying to jack him? I don't know what the end result of this was, but it was sketchy as fuck. Yeah, he was like trying... Copies of the house key and his car key. Are these guys... Were they friends? I think they were friends at this time. Yeah, and so he was just like low-key gonna rob him by like duplicating his car key and his apartment key. At least so he can take his car or something. I'm, I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, he thought he was probably being real fucking and then you know, this actually happened to me when I worked at Jefferson High School. A kid, I mean, not exactly, but I lost my well, my keys got swiped and I was getting there was no way I could get home or anything cuz I had my car key on it. And I got super duper upset and this kid was still at school like school had been out for like quite a while and he was like oh i'll help you find your keys and then i had this feeling that he was the one that stole my keys and so i started just like uncontrollably crying and being like talking about how my privacy had been like 
you know, like taken from me and how like it was like fucking such a humongous deal. Like I was going to have to probably just like sell my car or something because there was no other copy of the key and all this stuff. And then miraculously, he found my keys in the boys bathroom like at the bottom of the trash can, which I'm like, dude, you're the one who stole my keys, you know, so I know exactly (laughs) how that Jefferson dude is feeling in a sense that like. Yeah, like, oh, you just happened to find my keys in, like, the weirdest fucking space or in a place that we already looked. Like, no, dude, you're you're doing something sketchy as fuck. Yeah. And then I never looked at that kid ever the same, you know? Of course. Or just like, dude, I don't trust you. Watch your like, back, yeah. Yeah. At least he gave them back to me. He could have stolen them for good, but he had a little bit of a conscience But left. what was he going to do with them? He was going to steal my car, I guess. Did he know what car was yours? Yeah. Your shitty Corolla? Yeah, he was going to... St- I mean, he didn't have anything. He win. was like homeless at the time. I felt bad for <laughs> oh. him. And that's why I didn't really do anything beyond that. I actually even helped him after that. But like... Um, you stole your co-worker's he tried, keys? <laughs> he, try- he, tried, he tried to steal my car, basically. And it just... He couldn't do it. Because like, I was his teacher. You know, he felt bad. It's like he wanted to do crime, but like he didn't... Would you have given him an F if he f- actually stole your car? I don't think he would be allowed to be my student if he had stolen my car. But, you know, honestly, the good teacher in me is like, no, probably not if he had earned anything more than an F, you know. How, was he a good writer? No. Okay. <laughs> but he was an okay student. I felt bad for him. Luckily, I think actually at the time, he wasn't my student anymore. He had been my student. So I think he was a senior at the time and I had him as a junior. Yeah. I think I eventually graduated high school. You know who he is, but I won't say who he is. I'll give him. Hopefully, he's done less crime with his life. So, like I said, all of that happened. So, Jefferson immediately became suspicious of Pierre, as anyone would. And he changed all the locks on his shit. And then he was murdered with a bayonet fucking in his face. The perpetrator of that crime had jammed the long knife with such ferocity into Jefferson's face and head that only the handle could be seen. After interviewing dozens of witnesses and after researching the name of Curtis Alexander, Detective Don Moore came to the conclusion that Pierre had murdered Jefferson. However, there wasn't enough evidence to arrest or convict Pierre, so the case remained unsolved until he and William Andrews were brought to trial for the Hi-Fi Shop murders. Detectives were also able to get information from Orrin Walker, who is obviously extremely fucked up, but able to give details like both men were black. The taller of the two did most of the talking, and the shorter one had a distinct Caribbean accent, or Caribbean accent, however you say it. And also, he saw a yellow or cream-colored van parked behind the store. Police searched the area for a matching van and showed up to an apartment with guns drawn. The guy that answered the door was greeted by the barrels of a revolver and six shotguns. When he found why they were there, he just about died, said White. Leroy K. White was the lead detective in the case. He told us, Mr. White, this is no local black. There, This is no local black. So th- this detective goes to the door or when he talks to this resident that they showed up. This dude had the van that matched the description oh, okay. of the suspect van. And so the cops show up to the door uh, and talking to this guy, he's obviously not the dude. And so this quote you're about to read is from the, the resident. He says, Mr. White, this is no local black involved in this. You're looking for some out of state dudes. And that turned out to be fact. 
Hill Air Force Base was 12 miles away. FYI, Hill Air Force Base is in Utah. So where were they? So they were not, they didn't live in Ogden, I don't think. They were like 12 miles away. So he was basically saying like no one in this community would do that to a fellow member. This has to be someone from out. Uh, oh, meaning yeah. the Air Force because the Air Force base is in Utah, though. It is in Utah, but it's it but is he's 12 like, miles but away. no local would do this. That's what he's and, saying. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I see. With solid suspects, police obtained photos of both men. They also got a warrant or permission from the base to search the barracks of Pierre and William Andrews. During that search, officers found a list. The Hi-Fi shop was listed, said Nui. Nui's the prosecutor. Inkley's was listed. Other shops to be hit were listed, along with various high-fidelity information on types of electronics equipment. Officers also found rubber gloves and cellophane record wrappers that bore the name of the hi-fi shop. It further confirmed that Pierre and William Andrews were suspects, but it wasn't enough to take to court. Quote, as they were about to leave, one of the officers pulled up the carpeting, said Nui. Right in the middle of the carpet was a contract for a storage unit dated the day before the executions. So Pierre had gone down and rented a storage unit reasonably close to the hi-fi shop. Both men were arrested, and in Pierre's pocket, officers found a ring of keys. One of those... Oh. Yeah, one of the keys fit a military-type padlock on the door of the storage shed. Oh, I thought you were going to say that one of the keys fit that guy's apartment. Oh, no. No, but he... So... Before they did the robbery, he rents a storage space so they can store all of the stolen stolen shit. shit. Okay. And then he has the key in his pocket. The owner of the shed identified Pierre Selby as the man who rented the unit. Uh, And he said he was going to store a Corvette there. When officers entered the storage unit on Wednesday morning, April 24th, they they found stereo equipment stacked high. In addition, they found a bottle of liquid drain cleaner and several personal items belonging to the hi-fi shop owner, Brent Brent Richardson. So basically, that key ring was like the smoking gun, where it's just like, and here's everything we need. The contract and the key. Yeah, everything. Yeah. They also found fingerprints belonging to Pierre and William Andrews on the hi-fi shop equipment. But the detective work didn't stop there. Quote, I was interviewing people for two or three weeks after they were arrested, said White. Quote, it was two or three weeks later I arrested Keith Leon Roberts. He was the getaway driver. People at the scene said he was at the front door guarding, which, like we said, doesn't really make sense with the other people coming to the store. But Detective White also followed up on a lead, finding a flyer for the movie Magnum Force, which was showing at the base. Oh, wow. White interviewed the clerk that worked there, and the clerk remembered seeing Pierre and William and said that they'd seen the movie three times that day. Other wow. Tips, yeah, yeah, I know. Other tips came in, leading investigators to a second van that was at the scene, apparently. A blue van that belonged to William Andrews. In it, so I think that actually, the, the van was actually a blue van. It wasn't yellow. Hmm. But in it, uh, police discovered liquid drain cleaner spilled on the floor mat. All three were tried together for first-degree murder and robbery. The Deseret News reported on August 28, 1987, quote, because of emotion and tension surrounding the case, it had been moved to Farmington from Ogden in a change of venue. 
Still within the same judicial district, Ogden Judge John F. Walquist heard the case. Walker was able to testify as a star witness, and so that would be Orrin Walker. So he was the star witness. Courtney Nasbitt, on the other hand, he suffered from amnesia due to his injuries and did not go to the trials, but his father, Dr. Byron Nesbitt, did testify. Byron? Byron. 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 I like Byron. (laughs) Because Roberts was waiting in the van and he was not in the store at the time of the murders, he was only convicted of robbery and sent to prison. He was paroled in 1987. Pierre and William Andrews were found guilty on both accounts. So they were tried together. Yeah. As one case. So that's going to come up as like a, a thing later. That their that their cases weren't separated. So Pierre and William Andrews were found guilty on both accounts of robbery and murder in the first degree. A journalist covering the trial reported on November eleventh, nineteen seventy four, the decision came from an eleven man, one woman jury after a day long sentencing hearing. In All white. In the second district court, yeah. At the time of the original sentencing, the death penalty... And I, and I point that out because it becomes relevant later. Yeah. So at the time of the original sentencing, the death penalty choices were by hanging or by firing squad. That's crazy that that was still around in the 70s. Firing squad wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, yeah but... Better there, than hanging. There's, no, I, there's been some fuck-ups with the firing squads, too. And I think the last person to be killed by firing squad was Gary Gilmore in the state of Utah, right? Yeah. We covered him a long ass time ago. Yep. I think he was he was tried and convicted in like the sixties and it was in the seventies that he was executed. And he like really pushed his execution date up because he wanted to die. And that's why kinda his his crime kind of goes down kind of infamously because he didn't want any of his p- appeals. He wanted to be killed immediately. And I think there, I think after Gary Gilmore, I think that this dude was right after Gary Gilmore. There yeah, may have I been, think you're right. yeah, I think it was, that was like the last one. And it really kind of took the community by storm. Cause it was just like, fuck, like this person really wants to be killed, you know? So Gilbert Athe and John Kane, the attorneys for Pierre and William, appealed the verdicts with help from the NAACP and Amnesty International. The NAACP became involved because all three defendants were African-American. So during the process of selecting jurors, the candidates were intensely questioned in regards to their views on black people. I'm not sure if all the candidates were white, but the final jury selection was all white. Yeah. While in prison, Pierre legally changed his name. So his name was Dale S. Pierre, and he legally changed his name to Pierre Dale Selby. Pierre was put to death by lethal injection. Didn't but, didn't you say that like his name changed like 27 times while he was in prison? Yeah, he kept changing his name. So I guess like I think to not put like shame on his family, he didn't want it like to be connected. Either that or his family didn't want to be connected to him or they, I don't exactly know, but like he did feel, I think that the only reason he felt guilty, I think that he's a fucking sociopath, psychopath, but like, I think that the reason he felt guilty was not for himself necessarily, but he didn't want to bring his family into it, which is weird. Cause like, it's like he can fucking rape and shoot people and fucking kick pens into people's brains 
but he like feels bad for his family, you know. Well, true so- sociopaths don't, don't care about anybody. Have any regret for anything. So he must not be a true sociopath. I don't know. Either he's just like trying to fuck the system. I think that might be it more so. He just likes being difficult. So Pierre's Pierre's execution was the first by lethal injection in the state of Utah. Oh, that's right. And that was on August 28th, 1987. Gary DeLund, executive director of the Department of Corrections, was the man who gave the order to execute Pierre. DeLund said, quote, It was remarkably different than the way his victims died. This execution was very calm, very peaceful. Lethal injection is probably the most humanitarian way to end a life. And I would say that Pierre is undeserving of that way to die. That's just me. Yeah, I remember listening to something about, maybe it was in the Cold podcast, where they were saying that, like, Firing Squad was, I don't know if it was him that was appealing the firing, because I think he was actually supposed to be killed by Firing Squad, but he was saying that it was um, inhumane, like it went against the Constitution. And, like, somebody, like, right before him, they were, he was executed by Firing Squad, and they missed like his brain by like a milliliter millimeter not milliliter (laughs) he they 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 missed his brain by very very little and so he would like convulsed and was like alive for like 27 minutes before he died why don't they shoot him again i don't know why because i think that they thought he was dead and like you're not writhing on the ground and i don't know how they i don't know what the rules of firing squad executions were but that i think that the whoever was shot and killed eventually by firing squad right before Pierre it took them 27 minutes to die so Pierre was trying to appeal his sentence saying that like execution you know the 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 firing squad execution was inhumane you know and so that's when the judge was like fine I'll just kill you by this new thing chemicals like so he was like oh fuck I thought I was gonna get out of the death sentence but now they just came up with a new one yeah yeah so Amnesty International held a candlelight vigil on the night Pierre was put to death. Why would they celebrate that shithead? I think that they're just against executions. I don't think they're necessarily for Pierre. I think they're just against executions. Because again, like, you know, Pierre obviously was admittedly fucking guilty as fuck. Right. But there were plenty of other people on death row that weren't guilty as fuck. So I don't think that Amnesty International was doing it specifically for Pierre. I think they were doing it for the death sentence in general, like that it was inhumane or unjust because there were too many innocent people on death row. Because I I would like to say, you know, Amnesty International has its issues, but for the most part, it's a humanitarian organization. It's not like, it's not person specific, I would say. So William Andrews had the chance to appeal again after Pierre was put to death. He believed he shouldn't die, that he was a victim of circumstance, error, and youth. Earl Dorius, the assistant attorney general at the time, described Andrews as, quote, very slick, almost warm-hearted, and sounds somewhat sorry for what he had done. But I'll tell you, he is very methodical in his answers. It's clear to me he's been prepped to go just so far. William Andrews was also executed by lethal injection on July 30th, 1992. Courtney Nesbitt's story became the basis for the book Victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder. 
This book was viewed by many as pioneering because it was one of the first true crime books that focused on the victims of a violent crime rather than the criminals. Mm. Courtney suffered chronic pain for the rest of his life until his death on June 4th, 2002 at the age of 44. Due to brain damage, he was forced to drop out of college and because he could not hold down a job, he had to apply for social security oh. assistance. God damn. So he just had a shit life. Yeah, after the, yeah, fucking sucks. I know. Orrin Walker, the other victim who survived, he died on February 13th, 2000. The high fine murders are still seen as among the worst crimes ever committed in the state of Utah. The case is now taught to FBI trainees at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Yeah, like I was saying. Yeah, and it was included as a sample case in the FBI's crime classification manual. So what do you what do you think? Sorry, I was looking up executions, and the it's it's really interesting how executions in Utah because the last execution for a while because I think there was some kind of federal stay on executions or something in the 60s but there's a dude named James Rogers who died in 1960 by firing squad and then Gary Gilmore was 17 years later the next victim well not victim was the next person killed by firing squad in 1977 so there was a 17 year kind of like stay on executions and then dale selby pierre was the next person after gary gilmore 10 years later and he was lethal injection and then the next three people were lethal injection and then fucking in 1996 somebody was killed by firing squad and then up to 2010 somebody was killed by firing squad so firing squad stayed around as a method of execution and might still even be today because if if the last person in Utah was killed in 2010 by firing squad, it's probably still around. So anyways, just, just a little side thing there. Um, what do I think? I think that, you know, after giving it some thought over the last week of researching and stuff, I think that William Andrews and Pierre's trials should have been separated because although they're both guilty of first-degree murder, well, no, I can't say that. Although they're both guilty of murder, I don't think I th I think that if their cases had been uncoupled, that I don't think William Andrews would have received the death penalty. I think he would have gotten life in prison without parole. And that's what he wanted. He didn't do any of the act of killing. Did he know he was probably that people were going to die? Probably. Did he help and aid and was an accomplice in everything? Absolutely. Did he actually do any of the act of killing? No. But. He was the one quoted as saying, I'm going to rob that store. I'm going to kill everyone I see. So they had the intent of killing everyone, and they tried to kill everyone. Yeah. And he poured the fucking just, shit down the throat. I'm just saying that if he I was on a... He put the pen in the ear. I mean, I'm just saying that if I was in a jury rape. trial, if I was in a jury trial, if coupled, then there was part of me. I don't believe... One, I'll just say I don't believe in the death penalty, but I'm trying to put myself in Utah in the 70s in this jury, you know? in this all white jury. I don't know. I don't, I, I think that context does change things a little bit. I'm not saying that like my, it would be different. I don't know. Like I, I think that if even, even if this happened today as a juror, I would ask the two cases to be uncoupled. And if I didn't have the power to do that, I wouldn't have given I the fact like 
I, we probably would have been hung jury because I wouldn't be able to give the death sentence. I could maybe, if Pierre was all on his own, I could maybe ha- hand down a death sentence, even though I don't believe in death sentences. But when coupled with, I'm not saying he's innocent. He's not fucking innocent of the crime at all. But he, like, I, it would be tough for me to hand a death sentence to to William Andrews. It would be very tough. I don't think I could do it. I know I couldn't do it. So that's why that's why to me the case is problematic at least the execution part of it cuz I don't think William Andrews should have been executed. But even if they're tried separately. But they're I fucking think, depraved motherfuckers, yeah, yeah, for sure. They both met their end and I think it was what they deserved. Two less evil cunts on this earth. Yeah, well, there it is. 1 billion more to go. I mean, it it stands as a precedent, right? And so if you do end up, uh, listeners, if you do end up listening to season two of Cold, he does bring it up a lot, especially uh, like in episodes like seven through 10-ish or so. Um, This case sets a precedent in Utah that is hard to overcome because I think that eventually in the eyes of the law or you know, legislature or something that most people agreed that the cases should not have been put together and that accomplices like, you know, whatever. Like there's there's definitely some historical precedents that are set in this case. And it I don't think it was the right call to couple the cases together. Well, there you have it. Well, there it is. So anyways, Amy doesn't agree. I don't I don't agree. But do I think that both men met their end? We can agree that they did meet their end. Yeah, I mean, that's just a fact. That's one thing we can agree on. (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know. It's when I think of how fucked up the crime was, it doesn't make me sad that both parties are dead that, you know, perpetrated those crimes. But it's still, man, this, this case keeps me up at night thinking about it. No one wins. Everybody loses in this case. Everybody loses. True. Because, I mean, even as a juror in this case, you got to feel fucking guilty as fuck as well. Like, this case ruined a lot of people's life. You know, not just, not just, it's not just the victims, but the victims' families, the perpetrators' families, the community, you know. Totally. The Air Force, right? Like, they, there was a big black mark on their record as well, you know. Um, people could not believe that servicemen could do something like this. Yeah, you definitely... We have like this image of our military, like they're like, you know, we put them up on a pedestal. Up. They're heroes, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like they're stand-up people, and most of them are. Same with like law enforcement; a lot of them are good people, but yeah. then there's and hopefully most of them are. Yeah, there's we they, people that in hide posi- behind the badge and they're do in, dumb yeah. bad shit too. They're so. in positions of power where we feel like we can trust them and we look up to them. So this was just a huge slap in the fo- face for the community. So that's the case this week. It was a fucking bummer of one. Nobody, I mean, as as is most bummer weeks. cases, yeah. Yeah, as is most weeks, it's a bummer and nobody wins. Well, it's not really a feel-good podcast. No, it's not the feel-good podcast with Amy and Kevin, unfortunately. It's the depraved human beings of the world garbage can dumpster fires show. So there it is. Well... You can join our True Crime Dumpster Facebook group or follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. And you can listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, YouTube, and many other platforms. 
Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Every review, rating, and referral gets us to a larger audience. Tune in next time as we continue talking out the trash. Bye. I would just like to say, give a quick shout out to those two teenagers who were dumpster diving at that Air Force base. Yeah. They were the ones that helped crack the case. So kudos to you, dumpster divers. And kudos to dumpsters. Bye. Bye.